When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Age of Radio. listening to Texas History Lessons, a slow walk through Texas history made in Texas by a Texan for everyone everywhere. The book you're writing, is that for your graduate studies or is that just an independent thing you're, you're doing for yeah, tying it together? Good question. Uh, the book I'm writing right now, which is almost complete, I have one more chapter to finish. It's called Wrangling Pelicans, and it's pretty much a social history of procedural soldiers. Oh. So I, I give, yeah, like a ground-up view of the soldiers who manned the forts that the Spanish had in Texas and all along the, the northern border. And that's just for my own uh, oh, that's... my own pleasure and just to publish. And then the Caracol research will be my dissertation. Excellent. book. Okay, that'll help me. I will bring both of those up. I'm excited about the book. I didn't know you were working on that. And that's yeah, going to be really, really exciting. It really got going quite quick. It was a research paper. It just was so fun to write about and just so much information to include. I was like, yeah, I might as well extend this to a book. And, you know, I was listening to your latest or one of your latest ones on the internal provinces. And I was like, I'm really happy that Michael's into this type of stuff, too. I think you'd be my, my audience. The book. Oh, definitely. When as soon as you mentioned what the book's about, I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> send me a copy now. <laughs> I would love to because I, you know, we'll get into this when we're when we start actually recording here. But I'm just so that's one of the reasons I started the podcast is personally I realized there's a lot I missed out on even in in graduate school. I just mm-hmm. didn't learn. There's such a deeper story, and that's why I'm interested in this. I'm just learning that there's a whole world a whole literally a whole history that happened here in the state that kind of just gets passed over yeah there was a mission period and it didn't go very well and blah 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 and insignificant all this stuff but really there's a rich deep story about the life that happened here for hundreds of years before you know Stephen austin ever heard of texas you know so i'm so happy bring that up because the Spanish era of Texas, and probably shouldn't, I probably shouldn't label the Spanish era because the Native people were in control at the time, but that, that whole time period is just so fascinating, and the stories that come out of it are just so interesting, and not a lot of people have written about it because not a lot of people are, you know, done the research because they don't read Spanish or right. you know where the archives are, so 
Yeah, that's, I think it's uh, definitely right for uh, a lot of research. That's something I'm glad you brought up. You know what? Just to heck with it. We're already recording. Um, yeah, we did our little test. I'm going to do an introduction here. Welcome to Texas History. I'm Michael, and I'm happy today to have Tim Sider on with me. He's a Ph.D. student at uh, SMU, the uh, History Department at SMU. SMU uh, History Department, yeah. I found you through, I guess it was through your website. You have a website up on the Karankawas, and I, that's back when I started the podcast. I was really excited about all the information you had. On that, I think we had contacted some. You've been a Patreon supporter for me, just because you're a cool dude, and uh, <laughs> and we've you know talked back and forth a little every once in a while. But mostly, after I had my conversation with Mister Melvin Edwards about his book, The Eyes of Texans, I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed having somebody on that knew a lot about the subject that I was just interested in, and that's why I reached out to you immediately. I said, "Let's talk to Tim." and see, get some information about a subject that I'm still learning about, as we were just talking about. And one of the things that you pointed out is, and this is something I'm dealing with personally here and trying to give the proper attention, is even though we call it Spain or Spanish Texas or New Spanish Texas or, you know, the French period when France attempted to have a part of Texas there with LaSalle, it never really was, for the most part, theirs. The the I mean, you look at the maps, and they'll show this great map from all the Spanish territory all the way up into the northwest. They didn't really have control of it. It's still the indigenous people's land. You yeah, know, that's uh, that's really important to point out. And then if you look at a lot of the history books being released today about Spanish Texas or about this time period. There's an increased focus on showing native dominance. So there's a, a famous book called Peace Came in the Form of a Woman yes. by Juliana Barr. And her main thesis, the simplest way to break it down, is that Texas was native ground, that natives controlled diplomatic exchanges, that controlled how they interacted with Europeans. And so when you think of Texas prior to, let's just say, the 18 hundreds you should think of texas as one where natives are exacting tribute from europeans they're going to european forts and they're getting goods that the europeans they have settlements there and they claim to have all this land on their maps but in reality they're small little islands of spanish power in the midst of an ocean of native power so this is not european land natives are the ones controlling everything Exactly. That's very similar. I'm familiar with that book. I recently got a version of that. I was gonna, I'm gonna use and research on, and it's it's also similar to the work that's been done by. And I'm gonna butcher this name. You can maybe help me out. I'm sure you are aware of Pekka Hamalayan or Hamalayan. How do you say that? Uh, So I'm sure your listeners are also aware of his Comanche Empire, and that's great, right? incorporating a Native American group as an empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's doing the same thing with his latest book, Lakota America. Uh, it's a very similar book to Kanji Empire, but it's it's interesting to see that Lakota America, uh, Hamelanen's latest book, has gotten a lot of controversial um, responses to that. And I think the reason for it is because he's not 
including Native peoples when he's writing this history. So that's how, kind of how the field has gone from, you know, that's where it's at presently. Mm-hmm. Or if you're writing a, a history of the Chronicles, for instance, yeah. I need to contact people that uh, identify as Chronicle today and talk to them about the history I'm writing and get their input into that history. And so Hamlin is great for showing the Native dominance, but... Uh, recently, he hasn't been contacting native peoples, which is now okay. considered to be the norm. I see. I see. Okay, let's let's before we get into all this exciting stuff, um, sure. Tim, where are you from, and why did you? When did you realize history is something you were going to be interested in and pursue um, to the extent that you were going to go to SMU and pursue a graduate degree? A good question. So I'm originally from a, a town called Friendswood, and it's between Houston and Galveston. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, when I got to college, I actually withdrew from the University of Houston after like a week uh, when I was enrolled, and I decided to walk the Appalachian Trail. Uh, I did like a 1,000-plus miles on the Appalachian Trail, and then the next year I did around 1,500 miles on the PCT. And after walking all those long-distance trails, uh, I really realized how wonderful it is to go to school and just learn and study full-time. So I went back to community college, and I had uh, the cliche story of having a really good professor named Andrew Joseph Pagoda. And he was my history professor, and he really was the one that pushed me into this field of history. I mean, who doesn't love to read about all this real-life drama um, so yeah, once I found myself enthralled with history, I just kept going up through uh, those different levels and finally applied to SMU, which has a phenomenal Southwestern-focused graduate school. And yeah, here I am. I'm currently a candidate, a graduate candidate at SMU, and I should be finishing my dissertation, which I'll turn into a book on the Chronicle Peoples in about two years. I think I have two years left of funding. Uh, that's my, my quick story in a little nutshell. Wow, uh, you you had me at the Appalachian Trail. You're quite an you're quite an adventure, also. I mean, you and part of your um, growing up down where you did, you had access to, and I've seen pictures that you've explored the Gulf Coast in kayaks, right? I mean, you've tried to visit and find where the Karankawas lived and actually experienced it. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, Because I lived on land that was like the Karankwas, it was easy for me to access it, but I never really lived on the coast itself. So me and some buddies got some kayaks and actually kayaked to some historical spots and camped there for the night. And just, I guess, to get an idea of what it would be like to to live out there on a day-to-day basis. And I'll tell you that our experience, all of our kayak trips have been Wonderful, but at the same time, terrible. There was, like, no shade. We ended up having to stack our kayaks one on top of the other and, like, hide behind them so we wouldn't get even more sunburned. Uh, the mosquitoes were crazy. The wind was nonstop. So it definitely gave me a newfound respect for the Native peoples I was uh, writing about. Well, that's pretty perfect that you brought that up because this is where they survived and lived, and it kind of gave you a similar feeling to maybe what the survivors or the Norvea's expedition that yeah. got crashed onto the the barrier islands down there, what how what they under 
experience. You know, it's like they it probably was similar to that. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, reading Grizz's Doctor's account and all the other survivors, it's, it's pretty wild. Uh, I like what you said, how they, they survived very well in this harsh environment. And they really, the Chronicle people, as I'm saying, uh, really thrived in this area that they had thousands. Their population was considered to be 8,000 at the time. They had permanent settlements um, you know, during European occupation that they yeah, they thrive in this environment despite its harsh nature. That's a good question. Let's start, go back. I'm going to start with a series of questions. So, because I had you on, because you have put more time in on understanding these people than probably anybody I know of. Okay, first of all, who were the Karankawas and where did they live? And what were their, the situation, uh, how did they live? Because they've been categorized as the most primitive people by older research. And, you know, it might not necessarily be the case from things I've been reading in other people's books recently. I'm just going to write these questions down so I address them point by point. Yes. And then how did they live? Okay. So the Kronkwas, I'll answer the first question. Who were the Kronkwas? Now, that's, we have to do some clarification. Uh, Karankawa is a umbrella term mm-hmm. for people who share the same Karankawa culture. So Karankawa kind of includes all the people that spoke the same language, mm-hmm. uh, Karankawan, and had a similar culture and similar ceremonies. And there are five main groups under that umbrella and some of these groups change over time and we don't know if there's more groups prior to European contact um, I'll try to do them off the top of my head I believe there's the Copains who are more aligned with the Spanish the Cujanos um, the Cocos uh, Guapites I think and then the Canacalas which is where was is derived from it's a, a Spanish um, name for one of the largest Cronqua tribes so that's who the Kronkwas are. They're a collection of culture people. They speak the same language. They have a similar culture. Uh, where did the Kronkwas live? They span from around the bays of Galveston all the way down to, we can push the like, southernmost extent to Baffin Bay. So a large area of land. But it's significant for us to point out that their territory changes over time. So as you mentioned earlier, whenever Kizadvaka and these other PT stores crash land on the Texas Gulf Coast, they land uh, on Fullerton Island or around Galveston Island. And that was, at that time, the northern extent of the Kronk was land. Um, but over the next hundred years, we see that land kind of shrink down and then expand up again. And so it's, we need to make sure we're aware that the Kronk was land isn't just hard set, that it is constantly moving back and forth. Mm-hmm. And then how the Kronk was lived, I'm really happy you brought up that older histories portrayed them as the most barbaric and uh, savage and crude people, and that's just not at all. A lot of this misinformation 
stems from Spanish accounts and Anglo-American accounts of the Chronicles. And when I say that, we have to understand that the Chronicles were able to defend their territory for longer than the United States has been a nation. So they defended their territory from the Spanish, they defended their territory from Anglo-Americans, they defended from the Mexicans as well. And because of this, and because they were so effective at this defense, these enemies, Anglo-Americans and Mexicans, uh, and the Spaniards put in have a lot of sources where they, they talk shit about the Chronicles, and so the first historians kind of just latched onto these sources as if they were totally accurate. But when we look at archaeologically, we see that the Chronicles had an extremely diverse diet. It was so diverse that they were considered to be taller than most Native Americans in the entirety of Texas. Mm-hmm. But they weren't nomadic. They didn't just move around mindlessly looking for food. They actually had permanent settlements that had home, or had, you know, these settlements had populations of more than 500 people. And so they were uh, semi-nomadic. They were settled. They had extremely advanced technology for fishing, particularly for making canoes. Uh, so yeah, I think it's important for us to know that they weren't just some backward people. Uh, although the Caddo's, of course, were settled and sedentary and agriculture established. The Kronk was in the environment they lived in wasn't conducive to a large degree farming and so they may do what they had and they flourished as I, I mentioned previously. But hopefully that answered all of your No, that's exactly that's that's fascinating to me. Um however time even even so I mean even Newcomb's book, which was is Yeah. I was going to ask you, how does his work hold up compared to some of the more recent? I mean, it's, it's pretty blatantly racist and even in parts of the way he, <laughs> he is, but, but he does have a lot of pertinent information for that he gathered over time. And it was the standard for a long time. I mean, Lever's book is one of the best ones, I guess, in recent history that's been written. And then there was the work of Rickless. I can't remember his first Absolutely. name. Where I saw that's where you touched on the fact that they they did have permanent locations, but they had to move. They moved cyclically during the year. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you're bringing up a lot of great books. I think that Newcomb's. Uh, I'm gonna actually look up the title. It's like Indians of Texas or something along those lines. Yeah. His his book was a really big game changer. Uh, I'm like it's definitely absolutely racist. Uh, he's ranking these cultures based on like their technological advancements um and all those advancements it's like if you conform your culture is more advanced than another culture which is problematic but mm-hmm. the reason why newcomb's book is so important is because he's finally starting to look at all the sources um, and look at them objectively and see like okay this doesn't make sense like so lisa's uh, testimony it looks a little bit biased. Maybe we shouldn't use this. And ever since then, as you pointed out, we have Lever, we have Rickless, we have Himmel, we have Foster, who are all writing much better histories of the Chronicles. I, I do think that the history of the Chronicles has improved markedly. It's just continued to improve. And now with the Chronicle which is this kind of resurgence of Chronicle identified people, Mm-hmm. Their image in the historical record is is really improving. So that's really good news. That's interesting. That you, you want to. I I asked on Twitter last night if anybody had questions. Let's go ahead and touch on one of them. Sure. And it'll also talk touch on Newcomb because 
if I'm not mistaken, Newcomb pretty much, in lots of history books over time, Texas history books, just say that, well, the Humanos are extinct. The Coatecans mm. are extinct. The Caracuas are extinct. They no longer exist. But one of the beauties of social media and internet that we were talking about before we started recording is there's an ability to connect with people. And so when I was doing my early episodes on the Koei Takons, the, the Humanos, I actually found people and had conversations with them. And, you know, I saw that you had the Karankawas are alive and well today. Um, exactly. And one of the explanations that I want you to address this as well and what you're talking about, the modern Karankawas, that it was a survival mechanism because the racism against Indians was so bad and they did intermarry into the Mexican culture that they identified as Mexican rather than Native American, even though at home they carried on their traditions and passed on the stories and things like that. But it was a survival mechanism. But, you know, we've progressed, thank goodness, as uh, as people. We slowly get things <laughs> right sometimes. And now people are coming out and grasping their identity and not they don't have to hide anymore. Yeah, I think this is such a fascinating subject, and this is kind of the prime area which my book will cover. This idea of, are the Kronkwas extinct? How do they reform? Uh, are they still here today? And the answer is, like, they're not extinct. They're definitely still here. Um, but I'll give us some background. Mm-hmm. So I'll say that all the way up into maybe the 1820s, the Kronkwas still held on tightly to their identity. They were still in control of their coast. But whenever you have Anglo-Americans coming in in the United States, crossing the border from Louisiana, coming into North Texas, uh, they just overwhelm the Cronkwa people. And Austin's land grant is, you know, prime in Cronkwa territory. So you just have thousands and thousands of settlers coming in and living differently than the Spaniards. So the standards, they always kind of consolidated into towns. They had ranches, of course, but they lived together in towns. That was easier for the Chronicles to manage. But these Anglo-Americans came and they homesteaded. So they just came and they plopped down in the middle of the Chronicles territory. You can't control, the Chronicles couldn't control their land as well as they could. And so around the 1820s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, the Chronicles power really begins to recede. And what happens is you have Anglo-American settlers conducting extermination campaigns mm-hmm. to rid the land of the Karankwas and hunting down and killing Karankwas. Uh, and so what the Karankwas do is they, one, incorporate with other Native American groups. Uh, two, they flee into Mexico and try to establish themselves in uh, northern, northeast Mexico. And then three, which is, you know, the people I've been interviewing most, this is kind of what they've done, is they would incorporate themselves into the society. So they would label themselves as Mexican and try to pass as Mexican, but still hold on to their, their identity as Karankawa. Uh, it's interesting that I would say up until 2000, maybe 18, the Karankawas were still considered by most academics to be extinct. 
there was an individual, a man named Enrique Gonzalez, who I believe in 2009 uh, went to the newspaper and said he was the last Kronkla alive, that he was the last Kronkla Indian still living. And this academic from Brownsville just shut him down and said, there's no way you could be a Kronkla. There's no way. But you brought it up. Starting in 2018, people, and starting whenever I began to release my research too online on my Kronkla's blog, all these people started to get in touch with each other and create a community. And they all had oral histories from their past about how they, you know, their grandmother was a Kronkla woman and all the, the rituals attached to that. And so starting, I believe, yeah, in 2018, 2019, uh, around 60 to 100 people formed a group called the Karankwa Kadla. And what that means is mixed Karankwa. Uh, Kadla in the Karankwa language is Calico. So it's translated to English as mixed Karankwa. And all these people don't identify as being full-blooded Karankwas. They do identify as having partial chronicle blood and also Hispanic, uh, Hispanic heritage. Um, and so that's how they survived. And I, I'm really happy that you were talking to like the Kualtakan people uh, in which the same thing happened because they've really been pushing for a similar uh, identity, but it's, it's tricky, right? Because the state doesn't, I, the state doesn't recognize the Kronkwas, mm-hmm. the government, the federal government doesn't either. So you have a lot of naysayers who don't believe their oral histories. And so what I'm doing in my work is I'm actually tracking down, I'm finding these documents to show that the Kronkwas still survived. And I've been pretty successful. I can actually point to a Kronkwa individual and follow her ancestry, her uh, the people that are her descendants, all the way up to the present. I've done that with two families now. Um, but yeah, that's... I think that's a, a good answer to that question too. That's that's quite amazing. Um, you know, down in the San Antonio area, uh, I think I'm saying this correctly. The Tate Palom people, their yeah, boy take on exactly. that were there, and they were the they were the people that you know the missions were for, and they were the people that were living there for a long time before the Spanish ever showed up. And you know, they're having this big struggle right now because all this stuff that's being done with Thalamo. And yeah. there are their ancestors' bodies are underneath that sidewalk that you're walking on, and they just want recognition. And you know, it's a big battle that they're they're fighting to get some kind of acknowledgement. But the state says, "Well, it's a cemetery of no historical significance." Mm-hmm. Now, the Caracas now. Let's just go ahead and get. I have several more questions about the history, but the Caracas now have a fight that they're conducting down involving an important situation down on the Gulf Coast uh, in the Galveston area. Could you, you want to go ahead and talk about that a little bit? Sure, absolutely. So this brings us back to something we spoke about earlier, and that's that the Kronkwas had permanent settlements where they would come back to seasonally, seasonably, uh, seasonally, excuse me, in the winter. So every winter they would come back to these permanent settlements and live there. And there's a settlement on McGlowan's Bluff, and this is located in northeast Corpus Christi. It's right on the bay. And it was inhabited by the Kronkwas from the 1300s to the 1700s. So the space was inhabited for hundreds of years. And around 1950, 
some local from Corpus Christi told an archaeologist that he found Indian mounds in the area, and this archaeologist came to this Cronkwa settlement and found 3,000, more than 3,000 artifacts, mm. pottery shards, arrowheads just flying on the surface. It's easy to pick up and grab, no digging necessary. And so that's really all that happened for that land for, you know, from the 50s to the 90s, really nothing happened. It was just totally available. You would have people coming, stealing artifacts, taking what they wanted. And then come the 1990s, uh, a U.S. military Navy base was built there. Mm-hmm. And after that military base was decommissioned, the Corpus Christi Port Authority wanted to make sure that they could sell this land. There's no uh, historically important artifacts on this land. And so they did a, a legit archaeological study, and they uncovered over the span of five years, 40,000 Karankwa artifacts wow. on McGlone's Bluff. And so the Karankwa Kala people today recognize this as a sacred site, a sacred space where their ancestors lived for hundreds of years. But the big controversy is that the current, um, I would say, I wouldn't say the, the current t- tenant of the land goes by Inbridge, and they're a natural gas company. And they're looking to build a pipeline bridge right atop of this land and destroy the land and destroy the artifacts that are still on that land. The Conquacala don't want that to happen. They want to make this space a wildlife refuge where the public can also come and enjoy it themselves. And they want to protect the environment along that coast because although the pipeline terminal little uh, pier will obviously destroy the land that is you know needed to uh, get out of the way to build it the oil rig or the oil ships that are going to be docking there they ended up they end up destroying this seagrass so what happens is they're so large that when they dock on this pier they kick up so much mud and sand that it buries the seagrass and kills off all the seagrass and seagrass is extremely important for maintaining a healthy environment. So you have shrimp and fish that rely on this seagrass to survive. And so whenever it's di- whenever it dies off, these fish and shrimp also die off or go elsewhere. And if there's no fish and shrimp on this stretch of coast, that means that the birds and these other animals that live on the land also aren't going to be you know visiting this part of the land either way. So. It's, it's very complicated, but that's, I think, the, the simplest gist of it. There's been many different protests around Houston, Corpus Christi, and Austin to kind of halt this destruction of a Conqua sacred space. That's fascinating. And you have, a, I didn't, I think I briefly mentioned, you have a pretty awesome website where there's a, is there a link on that to, to, uh, the Karankawa people, or I know there's some kind of a message on your website about this situation. Yeah, there should be a link. The easiest way to learn more information about this is to type in stop inbridge. Inbridge is spelled E-N and then just bridge.com. Uh, and that has like the most up-to-date information. I know that some folks are we're trying to update the website even more. Um, yeah, thanks for asking about that. 
Yeah, your your website is pretty much the go-to for anybody that's curious about more on this subject because you have a great, you've done a lot of work on that. And, you know, the artwork, I don't, where did you come get that? Because the artwork is pretty uh, amazing in its own right, too. Yeah, it's it's great. So I, I'm really into rock climbing. And there's a, an artist I met while I was rock climbing once. And ever since I met her, I, I thought her work was amazing. And so whenever I end up writing an article, I let her read my article and my work. And then she just creates whatever she wants out of it. And so she's, you know, since then, she's created these portraits of Chronicle peoples that lived in Texas around like the 1600s. She's Create all these other different portraits for articles I've written. Yeah, so she's on all the original artwork on the chronicles.com website. She's really talented. Now, is that Michelle Wang? Yeah, exactly. Because uh, exactly. I'm, I'm looking at a copy of, I didn't mention this yet, you were talking about the, the Karanko struggle and fight to control their land. Well, you had an art, you actually had an article published in the Southwestern Historical Quarterly back in April of 2021. And not only do you have an article in it, her artwork is on the cover, which is a pretty astonishing piece of art in yeah. itself. Um, you want to talk about what your article was about there? And like, did you talk with her about uh, your the concept for that, that art, or did she just come up with that by herself? Yeah, awesome research yourself, Michael. Uh, we're going to cover that, yeah. Uh, so the article... Is on the Caranqua Spanish War, and this war lasted from around 1778 to 1789. And it was a war that I uncovered through all these primary sources that other historians hadn't really dug into. You had some folks like John Wheat and Elizabeth John who knew about these sources, but not many other people. And so during this war, the Spaniards are wanting to control the Caranqua's land. They want to have a port or build a port uh, on the coast, but the Cronquas control the coast. And the Cronquas are also kind of raiding their territory, and so they want to get rid of the Cronqua people. And so they begin to put together all these extermination campaigns. They actually try to commit genocide on the Cronqua people, but it does not work out for them at all. The Cronquas are so proficient and effective during this war that ultimately the Spaniards are having to pay tribute to the Caranca people for it to end. And at the very end of the war, the Spaniards actually build another mission for the Caranquas to dispense gifts to these Indian people. So yeah, the war was not effective at all. And so the article just goes into the in-depth about what happened during this time. And I gave that article to Michelle before it was published. And she read it all. She read all 30 pages. And I, I gave her no instruction about what she uh, could do. And she created this amazing painting, which you have the Presidio La Bahia, or Mission Rosario in the background. You have a, a shipwreck, which is, plays a big deal in the story. And then you have, you know, a Cronco individual in a canoe and these Spaniards trying to build their own canoes ineffectively. So. It ties all into the, the article, and she did a wonderful job. No, that's a, it's a great piece of art, and the article itself is a fine piece of scholarship. You, um, that's that's going to be part of your work on this is going to be part of what you're working on for at SMU. But you're also working on a book 
that's separate from all this. Do you want to mention that your research on that? Sure. Yeah, so I'm also I'm about to publish a book called Wrangling Pelicans, uh, The Daily Life of Presidial Soldiers in 18th Century Texas. So to make that as simple as possible, I'm writing a book on the daily life of soldiers, Spanish Spanish soldiers who lived in Texas during the 1700s. And as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know as well, Spain, Spain, the Spanish had around three or four forts in Spanish Texas throughout this period, and around 20 to 50 men manned these forts. And you have other scholarship, uh, like a book called The Presidio from Max Moorhead, that kind of deals with this type of stuff, mm-hmm. but it looks at it from an institutional point of view. So we learn about what the soldiers were paid what their leaders did to you know, make the Presidio better. But we don't get it from their point of view. And so my book will really be covering that. Like, what was it uh, day-to-day, hour-by-hour life like for a soldier? What would they be doing? And when it really comes down to it, their day-to-day life was guarding the horse herd, escorting people from one city to the next. They would not very frequently be attacking Native peoples. And if they tried to, they were not effective. They're... Life was uh, not as exciting as people tend to think, but of, of course there were very exciting moments. The book is called Wrangling Pelicans, and it's given that name based on this order that King Carlos gave to the soldiers of the fort at present-day Goliad. And King Carlos is king of Spain. Mm-hmm. He sends a letter to the viceroy, and he says, I want a flock of pelicans. So the Viceroy sends that letter to present-day Goliad and tells the soldier, hey, go get some pelicans for the king. But what the king doesn't know and what the Viceroy doesn't know is that all these pelicans, most of them are in the Kronkwa's territory, Mm -hmm. deep in the Kronkwa's territory. And so for all we know, for all intents and purposes, the soldiers just ignored the order and didn't do anything. And so that's kind of the, the big point of my book is that uh, the superiors of these presidials think that you know, the soldiers will do whatever they say, but when we really get down to the, the bones of it, the soldiers have a lot more agency and power than we expect. Uh, fun fact, a little fun tidbit, King Carlos, I think a couple of years later, uh, doesn't want pelicans anymore. He wants uh, a buffalo, a bison, and so yeah. he sends a, a similar order up to you know present-day San Antonio and you actually have some citizens hunt down some bison and send them all the way. Like, I think one survives the journey all the way back to New Spain. There's a, a great article about yeah. that in the Southwestern Historical Quarterly. That's pretty amazing. I'm looking, really looking forward to you publishing that. That's going to be, that's, uh, what kind of, I mean, what, how am I going to phrase this question? It takes a lot of work to do what you're doing. And, and how do you find these resources? Where are these resources? I'm pretty sure you are you must be having to deal with a lot of Spanish documents. And um, how, what's the process that's been uh, you've been dealing with for, for researching this book? Yeah, it's a, a great question. Uh, especially because, here, I'll wait up this way. Um, first, I'll start everything off and say that Texas historians are very fortunate 
that Texas puts a lot of money into its history. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they're at the uh, Dolph Briscoe Archives at the University of Texas. We have these phenomenal translators. Probably the foremost among them is a, a man named John Wheat. And he is absolutely phenomenal. He's translated so many Spanish documents. And I'll, I'll tell you, I've, I've gone there in person. Uh, I've looked these documents online as well where I can zoom in and I've tried to translate the Spanish uh, the Castilian Spanish written in the 1700s and oh god it is so odd I think it took me two full days to translate one document but this translator John Weed's able to knock him out like in an hour or two he's, he's amazing that is amazing uh, you know there's, yeah. a, there's an online resource called the portal to Texas history where you can see uh, scanned copies of a lot of these documents like that. And it is, it's really hard to read. That's yeah, the, that's the nitty gritty yeah. part of the historian's work is like when you're actually getting in there and actually going through files and folders, you know, back, way back in time, I was sat at the Eamon Carter Museum going through Eamon Carter's papers and reading <laughs> notes and things, handwritten stuff, trying to make out, well, what's that letter? You know, did the same thing at TCU with Jim Wright's papers when he was Speaker of the House and as, as a congressman. And just going through and just trying to filter through all this information. And, you know, you're doing that in another language. And you have the benefit, though, of this amazing group of interpreters though but that's kind of the fun part of being a historian is like you're being a detective here yeah i'm glad you like even i'm I'm happy you brought up these other uh, that your own experience because even if they're in english yeah it's so difficult i was looking at stephen f austin's handwriting Mm -hmm. and it's pretty good by the the day's standard but even then i couldn't understand a single word of it at times yeah Right. So even if it's in English, and the same thing is true with this Castilian Spanish, where they're writing it, and they all have these, they all have these abbreviations, which I'm like, I have no idea what they mean, and they don't want to write out the whole word, so mm-hmm. they abbreviate it. But if you know, I, I don't know Castilian Spanish very well, so yeah, it was very, very difficult for me. I, I did my my fair share of that. I, I'd say the most of the work I'm, most of Wrangling Pelicans relies on translated sources by experts like John Wheat. Mm-hmm. But it, it brings us to our next topic is that, you know, a lot of these archival sources are not written by common soldiers. The mm-hmm. book I'm writing is about the people, the privates, you know, the privates, the surgeons, corporals, the people that aren't high-ranking uh, military officials. But the high-ranking military officials are the ones creating all of these documents. Most of these documents that we see in the archives so how do you get the voices of the privates? How do you get those perspectives? And my answer to it is kind of uh, straightforward and like beating my head against the keyboard, but I have been literally reading through every single document in the their archives wow. and pe- piecing it together, just the typical daily life of these soldiers. And I, I follow one soldier in particular named Antonio Trevino. I follow him from his birth and to him moving from Texas. And, you know, he, he blends the procedure, I believe, when he's 18. He ends up getting, he, he's, he's a smuggler. He smuggles in all sorts of different stuff. He's an Indian diplomat. He gets himself in trouble sometimes. And ultimately, he's promoted all the way up until to lieutenant. 
uh, and leaves Texas. So we get to see his kind of promotion and how he's promoted. And yeah, I think it's the, the first kind of on the ground social history of Presidio's in Texas. We have another author, Mark Santiago, who, who does this, Santiago in New Mexico. But yeah, I'm really looking forward to publishing this book. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. A lot of people are going to be excited about this. I think it's an important contribution. And between that and your work on the current cause, how do you have time to do all of this, man? Because that's a lot of people don't realize it's a lot of work just to come up with this and and look into these things. I mean, you wrote your your master's on the Trinity River, right? Right, right. The development and environmental. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you know firsthand just how long it takes to produce this type of scholarship. And there's only like two groups of people personally that I think can write, that have the time available to write history. Mm -hmm. The first are students like myself and professors who are funded by a university. I'm very fortunate to be given $20,000 a year to live off of. It's very small. I'm definitely struggling on food at times, um, but that's one group. The other group are retired folks, because otherwise, if you're not retired, it's just so much work. And, mm-hmm. uh, do, do you feel the same way about that? It, it's a, it, this the, at the level of work that I do, where I lean heavily on published work by other historians, and I try to do my own amount. I try to dig into primary sources as often as I can. This takes an astronomical amount of time just to do a thing, write a uh, some notes for a 30 minute episode, you know, it, it does, but I do it because I love it and I, I love learning and I love sharing what I learn. You know, I, I don't claim to be an expert on it, but I feel that if I put the effort in that at least it's coming out and helping other people understand things that hadn't been uh, seen before because I recently I just did an episode on the Black Seminoles and I'd always heard about mm-hmm. yeah the Seminoles and Black Seminoles that ended up in Texas and it's never I never learned much more past that but then when I actually started digging into learning about that I'm completely right now fascinated with their entire story from the time of you know the Black slaves escaping and moving in into Florida and then their whole journey this way and then into Mexico where there's still a community of black Seminoles down there. Kickapoos live down there. Um, I don't know. It, I just, we find the time to do what we love, you know, and that's why yeah. I do it too. Yeah, it's it's a lot of work, though. I mean, your, your podcast is fantastic. I, I've been listening to episodes for quite some time. You're always very accurate. And even the latest episode, I really appreciated that you are talking about, should we use, like, the term Indians or mm-hmm. should we just... Uh, you know, label them by their tribal name. And I love your response about how, yeah, I respect them. And because I respect them, I, I make sure to call them by the Comanches or the Cronquas instead of just those Indians. Uh, yeah, I think you're fantastic. And your voice, too, <laughs> your voice is perfect for a podcast. <laughs> I got, whenever you first called me uh, and I picked up, I was wondering if you had sound like you do on the podcast i was wondering if you just like put on a voice but no that that's a normal voice and it's, it's no like that's my north texas country boy voice right there yeah but uh let's get back to the current was um sure walk me through the how would you say the life cycle through or the cycle that they would go through 
through a year where they did move from one place to another based on the resources. And after that, I'm curious about what you've discovered about like like their belief system, the way they looked at the world, um, how they saw themselves in the world, well, their part in it. Um, if you could touch on that. Sure. So I'll start with the kind of the seasonal life of the Chronicles, and I'll move on to their customs and their beliefs. Okay. Okay. So seasonally, seasonally um, in the winter, and the fall and the winter, you would have the Chronicles living on their barrier islands. And they're doing this because they have, there's much more access to fish during this time. So they're living in large settlements. They're hunting fish. They're gathering oysters. They get cattail roots. They're eating a very diverse diet. Uh, we've looked at, archaeologists have looked at their campsites and these village settlements. And they're finding hundreds of different varieties of possible food sources. So they're eating alligators, they're eating dolphins, porpoises, they're eating sharks, eating turtles. Um, so they have a, a really wide you know, variety of assessments. But come spring and summer, when it gets warmer, you have the bison being much more active in the area. You also have the deer being much more active in the area. And so they would move to the mainland in smaller groups, Usually it seems to be like family groups of 20, 30, 40, 50 and develop campsites on rivers and then hunt for bison and deer in the space. And when they are hunting for bison, we also see that they are joining other native groups like the Kohatekan people, the Tonkawas, and hunting as a larger group to take down bison. And so that's kind of the seasonal movement back and forth, back and forth. And whenever they are moving back to the Bering Islands, they're moving back to the same exact spots. When they move to the mainland, they move to a very similar spots as well. There's a book by Dan Worrell, uh, came out recently. It's called The Prehistory of Houston, I believe. And it's phenomenal. And he has maps there that show the rivers. And if you were just, if you're interested in this subject and you go out to a creek or river, it leads all the way to the coast, and you start digging around, mm-hmm. there's a really good chance you're going to find native artifacts. You know, just there's so many campsites along these creek beds and these rivers. These Both of these waterways obviously changed drastically throughout the centuries, but, yeah, the, if you just pull up the river map, that's a better indicator of where native peoples live than, you know, just on random spots of land. Okay, so I'll move on to customs and beliefs. The Kronkla's beliefs are really hard to pin down accurately. The best source that we have today are the living Kronkla Kabbalah members who remember what their ancestors told them, what their grandmother told them about their culture. Because prior, yeah, from the 1800s to the first contact, we really don't get any sources from the Kronkla's themselves talking about their belief system. Really, the only source we get is from a priest named Father Gaspar de Solis. And Solis's account, he is uh, visiting Texas missions, and he goes to Mission Rosario, which is near the coast, and he hates the Kronquas. They are just mm-hmm. coming to the mission. They're taking all the food, all these gifts, and they just go back to the coast. They're not worshiping God as they should be worshiped. They're not working. 
they're being lazy in his in his eyes, and so he just trashes them. He considers them to be like the most vile people in Texas, and this is where all these like myths stem from. He talks about how they're rampant cannibals, mm-hmm. and he he also tying this back into the question. He also writes about their religious beliefs, but these religious beliefs are hard to validate because all the other information he's writing about is inaccurate. And so we really don't know inaccuracy what the Chronicles' religious beliefs were, what they thought of the world around them. But we do know they had some ceremonies, and we see these ceremonies throughout their time on the coast. My favorite is that every single morning, despite the weather, despite if it was freezing cold or extremely hot, they would go bathe in the water that they were living around. So there's actually these amazing sources of these French children living with the Kronquas, and they write about how ridiculous it is that the Kronquas, when it's freezing cold and the river is iced up, the Kronquas would go out there, break a hole in the ice, and jump in the river to bathe themselves. So that was one custom. They're obsessed with uh, cleanliness in that sense. The next custom is the black drink. Mm-hmm. Um, so what would happen is whenever you have one Kronquan visual traveling to another clan's campsite, they'd be welcomed with yopon tea. And so they would grind up the yopon leaves, which have natural caffeine. They would add some possible berries, and they would give it to that individual traveling, traveling to a clan's campsite to refresh them so that was one of the black drinks another black drink we see was used in rituals and it seems like mountain laura berries were used in this ritualistic black drink and whenever they would drink this it would cause them to vomit and they'd be dancing and vomiting and it seems hallucinating as they continued the ritual and so those are kind of the two forms of black drinks we saw uh, throughout their history and then the last thing I'll touch on in terms of customs is something that I think are, is like absolutely fascinating. And the Karankwas had this awesome network of communication on the coast. Mm-hmm. Because everything's so flat, what they would do is just create a fire and had this intricate system of smoke signals. So whenever they needed to tell all the other Karankwa people what was going on in their area, they would just build a fire and like create smoke signals to alert the Karankwa people. So in the article I write about the Karankwa Spanish War that comes in really it's really, really handy in that you would have these Karankwa scouts seeing these Spanish expeditions coming to try to kill these Karankwa people and these scouts could just build a fire, put up some smoke, create smoke in a certain way to tell the other Indians around the area that these Spaniards are coming and they could all move away and not be worried about it. And the Spaniards would, t- the Spaniards would try to put up their own smoke signals because they didn't know, like, the uh, how to put up the smoke properly about how to, like, distribute it to mm-hmm. make it say something, that nothing would ever happen, and it would just indicate their location. So it, those are the most common customs and beliefs uh, that I could think of, at least off the top of my head. That's excellent. Um, I've had you on for almost an hour now. 
And I appreciate all the time. I could probably go on for another two or three hours just asking <laughs> questions and talking about different issues. And so I do want to have you come back sometime um, if you'd be interested, especially when your book comes out. After I read it, I'd like to talk to you about that. Um, I did have two questions asked by listeners. We've already touched on one. A. Omar Reina asked what became of the Karankawa people once the Spanish arrived. You pretty much very well addressed that. And then you just touched on the another one. And it's kind of the elephant in the room. It's the, it's the one that everybody talks about. And the Karankawas were hammered with it. The Tonkawas were hammered with this. And it's the and, and Jennifer Sheffield asked the question, what's up with the cannibalism? You know, was it real? Did it happen? Uh, you know, and I, you know, I found that discovered things that I've read and, you know, I actually get a mixed different people say modern scholars have different arguments. What is your take on that? Yes. I'm very familiar with this subject and it's a very tricky subject because you don't want to, um, I guess like harp on it so much where people only identify the Chronicles as cannibals, mm. but I'm glad we're talking about it. I'm glad I could kind of debunk some of these myths. Uh, so, okay, the simplest answer is yes. The Kronquas did practice a very limited ritualistic cannibalism all the way up until around the beginning of the 1700s. So after the 1700s, or after, you know, 1700 and onward, we don't see any, or we, I've never found any primary source so a source from that period at that time, which talks about the Chronicles practicing cannibalism. I don't find any uh, eyewitness accounts of that. But prior to then, there are definitely, I think, enough accounts to prove that, yes, these people did practice anthropophagy. And so it looked much different than what we hear about today. The, what the Chronicles would do is they would only eat the warriors of their enemies. Mm-hmm. And so during war, they would hunt down somebody, they would kill that person, they wouldn't torture them and eat them while they were still alive. They would kill that person and they would eat small pieces of that person's body. And what that served to do was to negate that person accessing the afterlife. Because it seems a custom of native groups in the Gulf Coast region is that when you die, your body your physical body moves with you to the afterlife. And so in grave sites, you actually see uh, native groups giving recently deceased people like fire starters or buffalo hides to protect them if the weather was bad or their bow and arrow. And so if you eat somebody, you take away their body they can't continue on in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. This is only reserved for ancient enemies. There's no evidence of this ever happening to a European uh, and then all the other groups in this area practice the same type of cannibalism. But around the 1700s, it seems like this practice really fell off. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of this is probably to do with the interaction with the Europeans and just, you know, cultural dynamics shifting with disease decimating all these populations. Mm-hmm. Um, but the significant thing for me to point out is that even though the Kronquas stopped their cannibalism at this point, the Europeans and the white newcomers to Texas really latch onto it, and they say that the Kronquas were intrepid and very active cannibals, that they actively hunted down children, kidnapped them, 
an eighth of OI that they would capture a, a victim, tie them up to a stake, dance around them, and then cut off pieces of their skin and eat them. And that's just not at all accurate. There's no evidence of that at all. But what these colonizers are doing are using cannibalism to make these native people seem less human and that allows them to justify their extermination campaigns and genocide which we see later on now the spaniards they try the same thing they try to label these chronicles as cannibals they try to exterminate them but does not work out at all but when the anglo-americans come in they do the same thing and they're much more active and they're much more effective in their extermination campaigns and are in a large extent successful but I think the most ironic thing is that while these Europeans are saying that Karankwas practice cannibalism and are making this up essentially as propaganda, mm-hmm. they themselves back in Europe are participating in, in anthropophagy themselves where they have these medical tinctures and this medicine which is ground up human flesh. Mm-hmm. And this is extremely common throughout Enlightenment in Europe and so while the Europeans are practicing cannibalism themselves, they see it as more enlightened and more scientific. Therefore, it's not the horrific cannibalism they associate with Native peoples. Well, that's fascinating. I, you, that's definitely something I've not been familiar with. That's interesting there. Yeah, that pretty much sums up what I, my, I've gathered. Um, even the Himalayan and the Lakota book, surprised me i had not heard about some they would they practiced something similar farther up north um um from where the the lakota originally uh, their enemies would would practice forms of that um you know we've covered um let's see you've got the website com, which is absolutely amazing keep up the good work on that Thank you. You've got your research on the Karankawas that you're working on now. You've got your book coming out. Definitely want you to come back when the book is out. We'll talk about it again. Um, We've talked about your adventures on the coast, learned that you've been up the Appalachian Trail. I probably could sit and ask you questions about that for a long time. Not going to bother you with that (laughs) right now. Um, We've covered the listeners' questions. We've kind of got a pretty good foundation from you on the Karankawas. We've learned a lot about the, the presidial life. And that and that's a fascinating thing to me. I'm really looking forward to learning more about that because that's one of the aspects I want to understand is, you know, we can look at these. We like to categorize peoples like the Karankawas. We give them this name for that bad group. They didn't consider themselves. They each band considered themselves as they were, just like the Koatakons. You know, they weren't Koatakons. You know, there are, exactly. there, there are peoples yeah. that we categorize as Coatecons. They say, no, I'm not, you know, especially down in like northern Mexico. Um, but that's how we do. We like to categorize things in time periods. And we like to draw maps and show, well, this is the extent of this great empire. But, you know, unless you can actually access the resources, it's not really yours. You know, um, so we've covered that. Is there anything else you want to touch on? Um if anybody's uh, interested in asking you questions or reaching out to you, is there contact information you'd like to say, share, or should they just go to your website? First, uh, I just want to thank you for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, I'm happy to, of course, I'm happy to t- talk about my research. So uh, thank you so much. In terms of contacting me, uh, I'm definitely open for people to reach out. That's the best way to do so is to type in 
cronkwas.com and go to the contact button slash form. And if you don't know how to spell Cronkwas, uh, just go into Google and just try to type it as best as you can. Yeah. And my site will usually be the first. If you have any information on these peoples, uh, if you yourself identify as Karankwa and are not part of the Karankwa pilot, definitely reach out and I would love to chat with you too. So again, Michael, thank you so much for, for having me on. Thank you so much. And, and uh, anytime you feel like talking about something, just let me know. We'll work it out. I apologize for the uh, technical issues we dealt with earlier. We worked that out and persevered. It's been a delight talking to you. Uh, good luck in your work. And uh, I'm excited to follow you as you, you know, you, you continue your studies and see what happens to you in the future there. Um, Likewise. Well, all thank right. you so much. Excellent. Thanks, Tim. All right. Wow, that, that was a lot of fun talking with Tim there. So let's take a quick break and thank Asia Radio for hosting the show. And we'll, we'll be back with some closing thoughts and some announcements. I really enjoyed doing that episode interview with Tim. So thanks to Tim Sider for joining me to talk about the current callers and much, much more. I think I told him after we got done recording, I seriously probably could have kept him on for another two or three hours just talking about one subject after another. It was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. I hope y'all did too. There's a lot from the interview that's given me some pretty cool ideas about how to approach some of the next episodes and lessons. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what Tim creates through his scholarship and having him back on to talk more about history in the future. And you can learn more by visiting Tim's websites, karankuas.com and timsider.com. There's a lot of great content that you can find there. So thanks again to Tim. Be sure to look forward to his book that's coming out when it's available. I'll definitely make sure it's talked about. We'll talk about it here and hopefully have him back on to discuss what the book's about some more in greater detail after I've read it. As always, I want to thank everyone that helps the show through Patreon and buy me a cup of coffee. You can support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes. Every little bit aids the show's efforts to create interesting history episodes. Go check out a couple of my favorite history podcasts, Wild West Extravaganza and The History Cafe. Both offer fascinating tales from the past. And I always look forward to what they're coming up with next. And for music, remember to listen to Texas River Tonk, a podcast that originates as a radio show every Friday down in San Marcos. Blake does a great job on it. Check out Aaron Lee Bentley on Off Mic, Off the Record. He also has some great Texas musicians on. And as always, remember Rev Waterman's Hymns of the Highway podcast. All three sharing the goal of promoting great Texas music. And they do it in different ways. So it's all entertaining. Now, Mr. Derek McClendon, who wrote and plays the Texas History Lessons theme, Walking Through History, he's got a new album out, Interstate Daydreamer. It features nine pretty amazing songs. So please go listen to it and grab yourself a copy wherever you get your digital music. Go check out his website, Derek McClendon Music. You can buy some merch from him there. Find out where he's doing shows. Go see him. They're all so good. I'm having a hard time trying to figure out which one is my favorite. So they are all my favorites now. And I'll probably share a track of it in the future. But right now, just go out there and do the work yourself and enjoy it. 
go give it a listen. Buy yourself a copy. Um, there's also new music out from Zach Welch and Robert Herrera. They have an EP live from Aggieland. It's got some great songs on it. So look for that. Remember also to go check out Mr. Melvin Edwards, The Eyes of Texans. It's a great book, and he's a great gentleman. I look forward to talking with him again. So thanks, everyone. Thanks, Tim. We'll be back soon with more Texas history. So take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Be kind.